Well, Brittany, police believe that they stopped this accused killer on his way to find his eighth victim. Police also say that it was community tips to crime stoppers and good old fashioned police work that led them to the accused killer. Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Too cold to play golf today, my friends. Way too cold. As you can see, I'm kind of dressed up for the cold. I'm going out to meet Steve here in a little bit for some pizza over at the Italian Gardens. Anyhow, I just I was watching the news this morning and, and saw that blurb, that uh, headline story about uh, hunting down the uh, serial killer in Stockton, California, and kind of took me back to the good old days. You know, they had this guy out stalking guys and just killing them randomly on the street. And the cops went on a big surveillance on him and, and caught him and caught him with the gun. I think maybe the gun that he had used before. Some other, I think he had a mask and then some other accoutrements. I hope they can make the case on him. And I'm sure they got the right guy. But, you know, I've I've been involved in that kind of stuff. We had one recently in Kansas City where it was ex- almost exactly the same kind of a uh, a situation where the guy was uh, prowling a little used walking trail and uh, around the 103rd state line, if I remember right. And and he killed two or three guys just, you know, randomly out of nothing. And, and, a, and an alert young district policeman, which I, I, I don't know who this guy was. I didn't know him, but, but he did a heck of a job. He, he noticed this kid hanging out and he fit the description of the suspect and he was hanging out at a bus stop, which is not, you know, here nor there is not uh, suspicious in its own. Uh, was young, like 20 some year old black kid. And then the suspect was a younger black kid like this. And, but he, he saw him throw down a cigarette butt and he alertly grabbed that cigarette butt and put it in the property room, sent it to the lab. And, and guess what? That lab brought back some DNA that matched that kid up with one of those murders and they arrest him. And, and there was no more after that. I, I followed the case. I haven't seen anything about it. He's probably copped a plea or something by now. Uh, so, you know, this happens in big cities and people just go out and they stalk people. You know, the ice man supposedly would just randomly kill people that Richard Klunsky, I can never pronounce that name back. east, claimed he was some kind of a mafia killer. I don't think he really was, but he, he definitely would randomly kill people. And, you know, there's been Dahmer, uh, would randomly snatch guys up and bring them in and, and kill them and eat them and, and there's there's always that going on. I did a story on the I-70 killer, and they never caught that person. Had a really unusual gun. I've I've searched on gun websites and gun forums and and asked people if they've ever seen a gun like this, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But there, these things happen, and and it's really difficult to for the police to do anything about. Now, when you get a pattern going, then you got something, uh, which we've had different rape suspect patterns and I've worked these surveillances. We, what we do is just like what they did out in Stockton. You take a crew of guys and you give them some radios and some slick cars. And, and you just, if you've got a suspect or maybe if you don't exactly have the suspect, you throw them in the area that the uh, crime uh, analyst will show you, you know, these, these crimes have all happened in a certain area then you just throw them in there, and I've done both. That's uh, a pretty common tactic that that cops use. And and I remember we had one uh, a lot like 
this one that they did out there in Stockton, where we had uh, we had had a series of rapes, and, and a couple of them were murdered back four or five years before we got into this case. And they caught a guy, and they caught the right guy, but because of a a legal glitch. And it's kind of an interesting legal glitch. We had a, they caught him in, his name was Vernon Tatum. They really caught him in the act, basically, of making, breaking into this old woman's apartment. They always broke into the elderly white women's apartments. And this guy was black. And they were all within a ge- certain geographical area in what we call the Midtown area, where you've got these old uh, three, four-story walk-ups in, in Kansas City. A lot of middle-sized cities will have these built in the 30s and 40s and uh, maybe in 20s even. So they caught him in the act. She had saw him, seen him get up on her porch and try to break in and, and uh, took him down. And they called in a guy named Marshall Saper, who was a he was a uh, uh, psychologist, uh, a reserve policeman. He was a psychologist for the police department. So they call him in and, and he questions the guy and, and he gets a enough of a confession out of him they're going to use that to charge him with the the most recent murder and then they've got him for the attempted burglary right there on the scene so they uh, uh he goes to trial actually he doesn't go to trial i think he coughed no he, he went to trial found him guilty he appealed and it got thrown out because the confession got thrown out and everything ended up getting thrown out after that confession so it was just you know he was back on the streets and and an alert sex crime sergeant named John Cowdery, he sees a report come through after this guy's gotten back out that kind of fit what he remembers the M.O. before. And that was an elderly white woman who had broken in and raped her and strangled her. And uh, in the Midtown area, there was another attempted break in, got scared off. Same kind of black male suspect. Uh of course, there wasn't a suspect on the murder. Didn't know who it was, but you know, it fit his pattern. After he got, after he won that appeal, nobody had really paid any attention to what happened to him. You know, did he go back? Did he cop a plea he's in prison? So Calder checks, and he's out of prison, and and he's living in Kansas City. Finds out his address. Uh, he goes to the upper management and say, they say, hey, you know, we need to do something about this guy, and. So they take, give him a few guys to just look at him and, and they find his apartment. They catch him coming out several days in a row, getting on a bus, going downtown. It was from the, what we call the east side of Kansas City. Uh, takes a bus into downtown. He'll go to the bus, main bus interchange and catch another bus. And he catch a country club bus where he was, that's where he was operating for was in what we call the either Westport or country club districts. And so he, He's doing the same thing, and he's going out there at night. We put together a whole big team. I was part of it. There's about four or five guys from intelligence with our cars, and there's about six guys from what we call the uh, white-collar crime squad uh, got on it, and they were all going to be on foot. And they all had, you know, rigged up with uh, walkie-talkies with earpieces and handheld mics where you could just hold it up like this and and, and kind of like a Secret Service agent and have it hanging down in your hand underneath your clothes. And so we uh, we take off. We get set. We got at a church right across the building from where he lives. He uh, put two guys or one guy actually up on the roof of that church or in the upper 
thing. It was warm. It was hot. So we'd get out on the roof. We could get out on the roof. And you could see him come up out of the projects where he lived, get on a bus. And so then you would, you know, you would radio the other team who would be several blocks away and get, you know, jump on that bus and take it. And, you know, here was, here's his pattern. He would go into downtown. He'd get out late in the afternoon. He would go down to the country club district. He'd get off about dark and he'd just start wandering the neighborhoods. And we'd get out and we'd follow and follow and follow. We had this particular rolling gate. I'll never forget that as long as I live. If I saw a guy walking, if I saw him walking a block or two in front of me with that rolling gate, I'd say, there goes Vernon Tatum. We better follow him. I mean, you'd follow him down these dark streets. And we didn't have, we got better streetlights now. And and he'd just disappear all of a sudden because what he'd do is, is he just take a quick right and go up a driveway or maybe up into a front yard and, and he just disappeared and just wait, you know, and if he didn't show back up out on the street or the street back on the other side, you'd have to watch, you know, all sides around this and somebody would have to start easing back in there. Cause what he was doing was going back in and, and prowling around and, and trying to find out maybe a window that was open and things like that. It was, it was really dicey. I mean, what do you do? You don't want to burn the surveillance and, and you don't know if he knows that you're following and he's just walked back there and waiting for you to walk back in there, which he finally did one time guy got quickly thought and turned around, act like he was a drunk and start throwing up. I don't, I don't think he bought it. I don't know. I think we probably eventually got burnt, but, but, so we're doing this night after night after night, working 12 hour shifts and nothing, crickets, nothing. This guy would disappear in the neighborhood. We'd take him down the neighborhood. He'd disappear behind the house and pop back out. He would get on a bus. A bus would just appear you know, like midnight. He'd walk out to a bus stop and a bus would appear. He had that bus uh, schedule down pat. He'd get off somewhere else, disappear, come back out, go to a bus stop, Buses were only run once an hour. He'd come back out right on the hour, catch that bus and take it maybe back down to the interchange, take a bus back out to his apartment. You just, you know, you knew it was going to be out prowling every night and we couldn't catch him doing anything and nothing was happening. So, you know, what are you going to do? Finally, upper management says, you know, we just have to cut this off. You know, we can't keep working 12 hour shifts. So we went like five to one in the morning and we kept it up. You know, again, everybody, all the other work we're doing, you just let it go. Just let it go and focus on Vernon Tatum. Same thing. He comes out and, and then he, uh, I remember this one night, he, he definitely he went back in. Cause I think maybe, you know, we were like around 11, 1130 at night and we were discussing, we put somebody down in the, the hood there close to where his apartment and he, uh, uh, they saw his lights were on. Then they went back and checked and his lights were off and we didn't see him coming back out to the bus stop. So we went on home and, and next day or two, we get a call from homicide and they have a dead body of an, like a 77 year old elderly, like my age, white woman in one of those apartment buildings where we had seen him prowling around and she's dead. Somebody, uh, she, they found an open window on the first level. He got in and he cut the telephone cord, which is part of his MO and he strangled her with it. And she'd been sexually assaulted. We go back. We're going to do 12 hour shifts now. And we get back on him. We're going to do something. We don't know what we're, we're got to do something. You just can't let this, it just can't stand. Uh, and, so the very first night we get back on him with these 12-hour shifts, 
he takes a bus just like normal late in the afternoon up to the central bus terminal. He gets on a uh, another bus, and we've had Bill Wilson go in and sit at one of the uh, bus stop seats and, and watches him, and he gets on the air as soon as the guy gets on the bus and starts driving off and alerts us that he's left, and, and there was a garble in the transmission, and everybody just thought he must have said country club bus because that's what he always went on was a country club bus and he'd go out to his primary hunting grounds if you will and so we're all headed south trying to catch up and find that country club bus and get you know follow it and then watch and see where he gets off somebody pulled up next to it and said you know i don't think he's on there you could kind of see you know heads in inside of a bus and, and but at that time bill wilson's got back out on the radio was asking where we were and somebody said you know we're like you know, Truman in Maine. And he said, oh, he said he went on the Quindaro bus. Said, oh, no. Well, Quindaro bus will go west into Kansas, not south, staying in Missouri. We all scramble around. The major happened to be out that night with his uh, his equipment sergeant, Jerry Happy and Major Key. And and, and they're out and, and they, ha- they hear this and they're closer than anybody to get headed west into Kansas from downtown, kind of west, southwest from downtown on the Quindaro bus. So they're trying, they caught the Quindaro bus while we're all trying to get turned around. They're in Kansas and and uh, I said, uh, one of the, I think the Sergeant Caldrick because he ended up getting in trouble for this because the major didn't like his attitude. As a matter of fact, he kicked him out right away after the whole thing was over. He, uh, Cowdery gets on. He says, well, is he on the bus? And they said, well, we can't tell. He said, well, stop the bus. He said, we can't. We're in Kansas. And they're just like this, like this big turd in the punch bowl. Like, oh, come on, man. This, you know, come on. <laughs> Do something. Just get out in front of the bus and get somebody on it or or just pull over in front of them and, and stop and, and you know, do something. We can't lose him. And, and Cowdery then makes some other kind of quip on the radio, which that's what got him booted out. As soon as this was over, he calls him in and said, you know, you're gone. Um, so we all go screaming over to Kansas and, and finally somebody gets in front of the bus, stops, gets out. And when the bus stops, the, stop, uh, stop, the bus stop, he gets on. And he's not on there. And so they asked the driver, said, you remember this guy? And gives him the description. He said, oh, yeah, he got off back there. Uh, just about the time he was, we we're just on the north side of uh, the KU Medical Center. I said, oh, well, KU Medical Center was just across state line and adjacent to some of these other places that that we had seen him prowling around. <laughs> I'll go screaming over the KU Med Center area and the normal areas. And we... We just patrol up and down those streets all night long. Nothing, not a crickets, nothing. Finally, we go home. And the next day or two, I think it was two days after that, uh, we find out that Kansas City, Kansas had caught him around this KU Med Center in a garage. They got a prowler, prowler call and they fought, caught him in a garage and hiding from them and they arrested him and he had a spider-man mask and, and a, a knife a pretty decent sized knife and some gloves and kind of your usual uh prowler serial killer kid 
took him in and held him and he got hold of back over crimes against persons and, and asked if they knew anything about this guy. And they said, Oh yeah. And so they held him on the burglary of this garage, kind of a slim charge, but they put enough high enough bond and they were able to then get, they took his shoes, the knife, the mask and sent it all back over to our lab. And, and they were able to come up with shoe prints, matching shoe prints outside of that last homicide. They were able to come up with uh, knife marks, tool marks off of that knife, off of the uh, telephone cord that had been cut with that last murder. And I believe they got some kind of DNA also uh, that, that hooked him into that. Anyhow, they they charged him with that murder and, and, and sent him to trial and he, he pled not guilty and he appealed it and and well, he actually died in the penitentiary uh, just uh, sometime in the last couple of years. So that's that's kind of the inside story of what one of those surveillances like. Uh, I'll tell you one other little quick one that, that I got into my tax squad. I had a SWAT team or tax squad and and we when we weren't doing training for uh, you know dynamic entries and service search warrants and armed and barricaded persons operation 100s we would just do general patrol and crime projects and metro patrols where we were assigned and we had a series of rapes and they couldn't identify the rapist the only thing they knew was a black dude he had some glimpses of him had the the victim statements but he always wore a mask and but they knew enough they were pretty sure he was black and and we just spread out in this neighborhood uh, so West, it was West Plaza is what it was. I ended up buying a house in this neighborhood later on because I really liked this neighborhood uh, other than him. It was really nice and quiet at night. And we were spending every night out there. I know my guys, they got where they hated it. I, I don't always kind of like that kind of stuff. But these tech guys, they wanted to go out and kick ass and take names. But we just get on porches, front porches of houses and, and have a couple of people in cars and everybody else would just get on the front porch and just wait to see if somebody would walk by. And somebody would and we'd follow them for a little bit. And then, you know, obviously they, you know, they weren't the guy. Uh, somebody else. We, we we trailed one guy who seemed to like, he, he like burnt whoever was following him. And he quickly darted into an apartment building in a, in the neighborhood. And and we we got a name. Uh, we got the, the a woman's name off that apartment, off her license number out in front, and ended up getting him identified. Name was Shy Bland, and and he ended up being the guy. But we never caught him. He never went back out. Uh, they caught him through a, a, a year later. He had uh, a credit card that he had taken out of one of these rapes and burglaries. But that's not the main point of this story of the surveillance. That was kind of a really boring surveillance story, long hours of tedium, which mainly they are. Um, but the last night we were going to do this, we had more action that night. We had the whole month before, uh, but it wasn't about the crime we were after. So we find a guy walking through the neighborhood and we follow him and follow him. And, and he really goes out of the neighborhood to kind of a commercial area adjacent to the neighborhood and he disappears back in a parking lot with a bunch of cars in it and he disappears next to a car about you know we give him about seven or eight minutes ten minutes and and we swoop in on the car and he's in the car uh laying on the floorboard when we when we run up but he has uh, uh found an unlocked car and he's there with the screwdriver and he is what we call what they used to call tilted the car you take a screwdriver stick it in the steering column and, and pop the lock and and you can drive off in those general motors cars for a period of time so we send one guy steve miller send him 
you know, take him on down booking for attempted auto theft. We go back out. We walk west from there just a few blocks and it's an entertainment district. I think we just kind of want to be, you know, be around the action down and down the girls and they're going in and out of the bars and, and we go out, you know, but we're kind of spread out. And I remember I was the one I saw somebody in a parking lot with a big, looked like a concrete block bashing up against the side window and just bouncing off of it. So I call the guys and they come swooping in and there's this girl who's about 80 pounds. She's a heroin addict and, and she's so weak. She's found this, this like a half a concrete block and she can pick it up, but she can't, didn't have enough strength to break out the side glass of this car. Well, we didn't want to mess with her. We said, well, what do you do? You know, who are you here with? Oh, my boyfriend, he's out driving around. So he had sent her in to steal something so they could go get some more heroin. We just kicked her out. So, you know, just get out of here. Don't come back to Westbourne. We'll, you know, kill you or something. I don't know what we said. <laughs> and we walked away from that. And and we see some Iranian dudes, as it turned out, some dark-complected young guys chasing a black dude up the street going, stop, thief, stop, thief. <laughs> so... We take off after the thief, you know, I guess we're a little bit prejudiced there, but, you know, we take off the guy who's running away from the guys that are yelling, stop thief. And and they see us running in all these big bruiser, as other guys are big bruisers, I'm not, you know, guys with, you know, a gun in their hand and a flashlight in the other and a radio and, and they stop. So we spread out. This guy runs behind a house and we spread out on both sides, on, uh, you know, Wyandotte and Central the, each street. And one guy takes off right in behind him, behind that house. We figure he'll flush out one side or the other. And we, you know, we're running down these side streets and all of a sudden I hear bam, bam, bam. Like, shit, they're shooting back up there. So I run back up and there's one of my guys standing there with his gun, his smoking gun in his hand. There's a dude laying there. And I said, man, what happened? He said, yeah, he said he pulled a knife on me and tried to cut me and I shot him. I said, okay. So where's the knife? You know, being the sergeant then, okay, where's the knife? Let's get this evidence right. Let's get this crime scene right. I know how important that is. You know, right there. So there's this big ass knife. It's about six inches long. It's got like a a, a knuckle duster, uh, like a saber would have over the knuckles. It's got like spikes on it. It was a pretty wicked looking knife. And <laughs> it's laying there. So about that time, some district guys pulled up. I grabbed one of them. I said, watch that knife. Do not let anybody touch or move that knife. We've got a crowd pulling up by then. They're screaming. One of them have seen my guy shoot this guy. And the only thing they see is somebody shooting somebody. And they're screaming. He killed him in cold blood. He killed him in cold blood, you know. And, and who, you know, like they can't figure out who's who and what's going on. One of my guys said, get those people out of here. And they were getting on my nerves too. So I did a very unskillful thing. I walked over and I threatened them. I said, you get the fuck out of here. <laughs> we got to put you in jail. They took off. Couldn't do that today for sure. I'd been on camera and I'd been in a world of trouble, but that was back then. Uh, go back up and and this guy, you know, the Iranian guys have sure shown back up and said, yeah, he was trying to break in our front window on our porch. So we start looking around other front porches. We find another screen that's been cut and somebody's taking a big dump on that front porch. And, and uh, they, they gathered up that dump. The crime scene people did and took it in. It was our guy's dump and our guy's poop. And and uh, they got the knife and, and Squeeze got a big cut on his hand or not a big one, but a cut on his finger. And, 
you know, everything's cool. Good shoot. Spend the night. Got to go down to crimes against persons and give statements and all that and internal affairs. And, and, and you know, it's just it's a nightmare to, to shoot somebody like that. It turns out the guy didn't die in it, it, either. So we go out. I take my guy out. And I'm not saying his name on purpose because I didn't ask him about using it. Take my guy out to the hospital just for a rant, just uh, a CYA check on his finger. It's really basically just a little thin slice, more than a paper cut. Like, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it, but, you know, it's cut. So the doc looks at you. I said, let me put a little, you know, pain, not painkiller, a little uh, antibiotic on it and wrap it up. He said, well, officer, he said, what happened? He said, well, the guy tried to cut me with a knife. He said, well, what'd you do? <laughs> My guy says, well, I shot him. <laughs> I never forget to look on that doctor's face. It's like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Turned around and walked off. So that's uh, those are stories of following those serial killers, serial rapist types, and trying to catch them in the act. It's a difficult thing to do. And, you, and, and, and if you get close to the act, then making the decision – if there's not a clear-cut decision, as they get close, you wait till they break a window or maybe they open a window. Do you stop them then? Do they like, maybe they like all of a sudden, you know, open a window and all of a sudden vault themselves through. Then you got your victim on the inside, you know, and, and you know, they don't really, like our guy, he didn't have a gun. He never shown a gun. Did have, you know, both of our guys had knives. One guy had shown a knife and you know what to do then. But, you know, it's it's just always it's it's a dicey situation. But you got to do something. As I used to say, let's go do something, even if it's wrong. It's it's a really tough situation. So my hat's off to those guys out in Stockton, California, for for catching that guy and, and getting all the evidence they needed and stopping those crimes. Thanks a lot, folks. And don't forget to look out for motorcycles. And uh, if you've got any problems with PTSD and you're a vet or you've got a friend who does and they're a vet, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. So thanks a lot, folks.